Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. On Friday a thief, on Sunday a king, laid down in grief, but I walk with the key to hell on that day, the firstborn of the slain, the man Jesus Christ laid. Welcome to Epiphany's Sunday Sermons, a podcast ministry of Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Our church exists to help people discover and rediscover the love of God in the Christian gospel. To learn more about our church, visit our website at epiphanyligonier.org. In our reading today from Acts 24, uh, we have a situation that's likely foreign to all of our experiences. Because if you've been following the sermon series so far, you'll remember that St. Paul's presence worshiping in the great temple of Jerusalem was not a welcome one. (laughs) Paul had been preaching internationally now for 30 years. He's been going across the Mediterranean uh, from city to city, uh, talking to people about Jesus. And at this point, he's a well-known figure in the ancient world. In fact, he's also a well-loathed figure as well, too, because as he was preaching about Jesus' death and resurrection, uh, he challenged some of the um, inaccurate presentations of God of his day. And so when Paul, after you know 30 years of ministering, returns home to Jerusalem to worship at the temple, uh, he is spotted by some of his theological enemies, people who disagreed with his teaching, Uh, to the point of uh, murderous vigor. And these theological enemies incite a riot against him, and um, they would have probably beaten Paul to death if the Roman quote-unquote police hadn't uh, intervened and broken up the mob. And so Paul has been um, detained, as it were, by the uh, Roman police, Roman uh, soldiers uh, on guard in the city of Jerusalem. And over the next few days, these Romans try to figure out what exactly Paul is, um, what did he do wrong? And they take him to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish court, and that becomes sort of a whole thing, and and um, things go crazy there. And then what happens next is the guards get wind that Paul um, may not have done anything wrong, but the people want him to die anyway. And so there's an assassination plot for Paul's life. And so uh, what's happening in our reading, friends, is, is today Paul has been transferred out of Jerusalem. He is no longer in Jerusalem. He's in a city called Caesarea, about three days away by foot north of Jerusalem. And while he is there, uh, this whole matter of whether Paul um, is guilty of a crime or whether a mob just wants him dead... Um, This whole trial is brought before a regional magistrate, a man named Antonius Felix, a Roman governor. And our reading today is Paul's sermon slash defense, his uh, criminal defense versus his, um, alongside of his evangelical mindset. He presents his case before Governor Felix. As our reading outlines, we discover that Governor Felix is not a great guy. We know this from external sources, too. You can read other historians of the day, and they will tell you that Governor Felix is an awful and corrupt politician. You know, we read it in our reading even today, right? We know that this Governor Felix is going to keep Paul in prison for two years. 
um, delaying a verdict on his trial to curry favor with the Jewish political bloc in Jerusalem. And we know that at least part of his motivation for, for having and keeping Paul around in our reading today was that he hoped for a bribe. <laughs> and so Governor Felix, this sort of terrible executive judge figure, uh, a terrible human being all around, um, that is the audience. Uh, one man and his wife uh, as well. A one-man audience uh, for Paul's message in our reading today. And so, what does Paul preach? What does Paul do when he is confronted with a figure of injustice and unfairness? I think that's the theme in our reading today. What happens when Paul um, has his back against the wall, when he's been arrested, when he's at the mercy of an unholy, corrupt judge, when he's powerless to do anything but just wait for his day in court, which doesn't come for forever, right? Like, we know that Paul is innocent. If you read through the book of Acts, Paul knows that Paul is innocent. But the facts are on his side. And yet, despite all of this, right, the the omnipotent and all-powerful God that Paul serves, um, right, has, for whatever reason, allowed Paul to be stuck in this hard situation. Uh, and so what does Paul do with his stuckness when he is... Uh, at the mercy of a wicked and corrupt judge and stuck in one place for two years. And that's what I want to talk about in our reading. And I think we have some insights for ourselves if we stick with it. And so first I'm going to look at Paul's initial defense outlined in our reading today. Um, because Paul has to address some of the legal matters that are brought before the magistrate, right? So he's going to, in our reading today, he's going to plead his innocence He's going to address the fact that his original accusers are not present. He's going to deny defiling the temple in Jerusalem because people had charged him of that. Uh, but he's also going to speak openly about a number of other theological matters. In fact, he's going to talk about the resurrection of the dead and the promise that everyone, even the unjust, will be resurrected to face the judging God of Jesus Christ. Um, that they will... Um, they will be part of the resurrection on the last day when Jesus returns and that all of the things done wicked in the world will in some way be held accountable. What does Paul say in our reading, right? But I confess this to you, uh, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be both a resurrection of the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. You can hear Paul in our reading today uh, d giving a defense, but also talking theology, talking resurrection in there as well. Paul's defense is apparently compelling enough to warrant a continued conversation. And the text tells us that Felix, the, the corrupt governor, and his wife Drusilla frequently call upon Paul to come and speak to them about the Christian faith and um, explain its details. We read that in our reading, right? Uh, what does the text tell us? And as he, Paul, reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment with Felix, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. I will get an opportunity. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time that Felix hoped that money would be given to him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. 
so throughout uh, our series in the book of Acts, we've identified this um, three different golden strands that link together everything in the book. And so if you've been following this series for a while, you know what they are. We've been looking at how every sermon in the book of Acts contains three core elements, and we can see them here in this passage as well. And those three golden threads are, of course, the resurrection of the dead, the final judgment of God, and repentance and forgiveness. Every sermon in the Bible preached by a follower of Jesus contains those three elements, and they are in our reading today as well. Paul talks about the final judgment of God when the just and the unjust are resurrected. Are resurrected, And the resurrection of the dead, specifically Jesus, is mentioned as well. But even in Paul's reasoning about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, as Paul is talking with this corrupt judge about the, the problem of being a corrupt judge, uh, we can imagine that conversation including an offer for repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Paul is actively trying to get repentance to come from this corrupt judge. And so these three core components that fill every one of the sermons of the book of Acts, we find them here as well. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, uh, the promise to come and judge the world, and the forgiveness of sins to anyone who repents. They're all here in some way, shape, or form. And I think what makes this text significant is, is that Paul's mission here is to bring the gospel to a corrupt Roman politician. In our previous readings, Paul has preached to Jews and Gentiles, to Athenian philosophers and Christian elders. But here, Paul is channeling his inner 60s rebel, right? Because he's speaking truth to power. You know that phrase, speaking truth to power, right? From the from the 60s, it's a great hippie phrase. It's one from an era of Vietnam protests and racial unrest. And the phrase, right, speaking truth to power, you may not know this. It was originally a Quaker phrase, right? Quakers, Christian friends, that that the pacifist Christian group. It was a Quaker uh, phrase. The Quakers came up with this language in a document that they published in 1965, excuse me, 1955, extolling the virtues of nonviolence, which they wanted to, to talk about, you know, during the nuclear age. And so the Quakers were trying to say, we understand that, you know, nonviolence is a hard thing to, to get around. Pacifism is a hard thing to get around. But um, here's something you can do. And, and they said this, one of the things you can do is um, devote yourself radically to that which is true to cut through propaganda and incorrect assumptions about the nature of reality. Um, that's what speaking truth to power meant. They said, if you want to affect change in the world, if you want to make something happen in the world, radically devote yourself to that which is true. And that will help you to cut through the propaganda and present the truth about reality as it really is so that people will not be able to deny it. And here's a sample of what the Quakers said from their pamphlet called Speaking Truth to Power. They said this, Our truth is an ancient one, that love endures and overcomes, and that hatred destroys, and that that which is obtained by love is retained, and that which is obtained by hatred proves to be a burden. And that's a nice thought, it is. And insofar as um, we are in Christ Jesus, I think that statement is true. But it is not the truth that, ta that Paul is speaking when he speaks truth to power. To a corrupt politician who holds Paul's life or death or imprisonment in his hands, um, to a man who wants bribes and political upward mobility, Paul speaks truth to power. But the truth he speaks is not 
What the Quakers have said, he speaks the Christian gospel, that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and he's coming to fix the world, and there's forgiveness of sins to anyone who repents. That is the truth that Paul is speaking to the corrupt power of his day. And I think that's remarkable, in fact. I think that's remarkable. Because you could think that Paul, given his circumstance, would not feel like preaching the gospel at all. All right? Paul is under house arrest, right? Um, he's changed, he, chained. He's restricted in his movements. Uh, he is unconcerned with many of the tangible things that we might be concerned with. In the middle of his imprisonment and house arrest, Paul is most interested in talking about God. He has this sort of serenity, um, this faith about him where he says, I don't care if my circumstances are bad. I'm still going to talk about God and how good he is right? He doesn't talk about his freedom. He doesn't talk about his trial. He doesn't talk about the evidence. He's not giving sort of ingratiating comments to the judge to sway him. Paul is most interested at the core of, of getting the Christian gospel message out and presenting it specifically to the author of his present unfairness and injustice. You know what I would want to pre tell the judge if I were in Paul's place? I'd probably use a lot of passive-aggressive religious language about freedom, you know, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Wait, wink, take a hint. Um, and I'd also talk about how often I was praying for the judge to make a good and, and wise decision in my case, and I would be more concerned with getting out of jail uh, instead of witnessing to the corrupt judge overseeing my case. But Paul has this self-actualized kind of faith where he knows um, that God's plan is bigger for him and he can stick out his neck for the sake of the mission and he could just sort of sit there and wallow in sadness, but he's got God's love and so he doesn't have to. So despite the unjust and unfair trial he is experiencing, God is, um, uh, Paul is feeling connected with God enough that he can um, not freak out about a situation but talk about his love. Now, at the outset of the sermon today, I, I said that Paul's situation is foreign to our experience. Because none of us have really in experienced a corrupt judicial system like this. It's 2021. It's America. You may not like the political system right now. I don't think anybody likes the political system right now, uh, left or right or center. All of us have our critiques. But I can I sincerely doubt that any of us have encountered the, the, the corruption uh, of this frustrating, power-hungry system that we see in our reading today. But that isn't to say we haven't experienced our own frustrating unfairness in life. Some of this, you know, this unfairness, we may not experience it through a corrupt judge, but we might, for example, at work, right? Maybe you were verbally promised a promotion and you worked hard to earn the promotion and they were grooming you for the promotion, but when the spot came open, your coworker got it instead. Your expectations of fairness and justice were subverted. And maybe you were promised a benefit, uh, or maybe you were promised to work certain hours when you joined uh, a new job. But then when you got your first schedule, your promised hours weren't there. And when you got your first paycheck, those benefits weren't there either, right? Your expectations of fairness uh, and justice were subverted. And maybe you own the business, and maybe you contracted out to a third party to have them perform a service for you, but the work done by the contractors is sloppy and subpar, and you've tried to work through it with them, but they're not being very reasonable, and you're stuck in a contract for the season to come, and so your expectations of fairness and justice are subverted. Uh, some of this comes through our families as well, right? 
You can see how one favored sibling is treated better than other favored siblings, or how the black sheep of the family is, is regularly ignored or left behind. Or you can see how grandma treats one side of the family differently than she treats the other side of the family, and it's clear that she has a favorite. And so your expectations of things that are, are fair and what is good and what is, what is just, they get subverted. And kids, you know, grasp this intuitively, don't they, right? You know, hey, you know, he got to ride the wide at Idlewild, so why can't I? She got to go do cheerleading, so why won't you let me try out for football? You know, mom, she's hogging the Nintendo controller. Dad, she's hogging the iPad. When it comes to sharing toys or the number of scoops of ice cream given at a dessert time, kids have a keen eye for unfairness and justice, don't they? And it may be tempting to see their concerns as petty in light of adult realities, but one of the things that catapults a child into adulthood, one of the things that breaks down childhood innocence, is their recognition that fairness and justice don't always happen. Those little subversions of fairness to kids, you know, they're a gateway to hard adult realities. And so we may not be under the thumb of an oppressive judge, but we can understand in our own time, in our own place, something similar which is that occasionally we are subject to powers beyond our control. Uh, we are subject to powers and whims of those in authority over us who do not have our best interests for us. And in fact, we can see plainly the injustice and the unfairness in our lives when it comes forward, and we are just powerless to do anything about it. You know, this happened to me once in a way that, that really impacted me when I was in college. Uh, I, I knew when I was in college that I, I had a, a vocational ministry in my future, that I wanted to do some sort of church work. But I didn't know whether I wanted to become an Anglican priest or a, a missionary to China. Spoiler alert, you know, right? You know how this played out. But like a while back, this is 13 years ago now in 2008, I had a chance to travel to China with a collegiate mission program and explore whether or not I wanted to be a missionary to China. And I had a number of years under my belt stuttering Mandarin Chinese. And so I spoke enough that I could travel and I was excited to test out my language skills. But in reality, I wanted to test out whether um, I was called to missionary work in China. And one of the things I really wanted to do was worship with a local Chinese Christian church. And I know the stereotype of China is that it's communist and atheist, and, and that is the media line and it's the government line, and there's some truth to that. But there are a number of Christians worshiping together in sanctioned Chinese uh, house, not just house churches, but an actual Chinese established church that was approved by the government. And there was one in the city we were in, and I wanted to go worship with them because uh, we had a free Sunday. And the team leaders on the trip, they knew this is what I wanted to do. They knew I was exploring a missionary calling to China. Uh, but they said, no, Brian, w don't go. Uh, you, we need you somewhere else for a special Sunday assignment. And I said, uh, that's not fair. Like, you know I'm here to explore my, my call, and this is something I've wanted to do. And I'm not going to have another chance to visit this church because the rest of our trip is booked. And so, so I don't understand why you guys are getting in the way of me figuring out my calling. This is an important part of that. Um, and so I was angry, I was frustrated, and I let them know that. And, and, and they didn't, I, again, I never did get a chance to go visit the Chinese church. And I remember these things 13 years later with a sense of kind of anger and frustration. But the project they needed me to work on was something different altogether because they knew I could play guitar. And they took me with some others in my team. Some got to go to Chinese church and some went to this other project. We went to this other project in a private rented vehicle. 
because where we were going, we didn't want anybody to follow us. We didn't want a, a taxi driver to come in and drop us off. We wanted a private vehicle. And the rental car, we, we pulled up into the driveway at, at an unassuming dirt road way outside the town that we were staying in. And as we walked up the path, we saw this large glass enclosed greenhouse. It was this beautiful building and inside there was lots of tropical plants and um, everything had glass windows in it. and It was beautiful and I could see from the outside there must have been 60 or 70 people in this large greenhouse. And all of them, to my shock and amazement, were white. They were all white people. And I'm way out in like Western China, right? This is a city the size of Pittsburgh, way out in Western China. The only Western restaurant they have is uh, one Kentucky Fried Chicken, right? That's the closest thing we had to Western food there, right? So, you know, go figure. Like seeing 60 or 70 white people was not what I expected to see. In addition to the 60 or 70 white people in this glass greenhouse were an additional 20 kids. Um, because you see, they were all missionaries, and each of them were working in cities or regions nearby. Each of them were isolated from Christian fellowship. Each of them came to the city to meet and pray and worship together, privately, out of sight from any Chinese authorities or citizens that could report us. And many of them had small children on the mission field too. They were all very young, and they were all growing up in, in China as expatriates. They were from places like America and Canada and Australia and New Zealand, but they were growing up without a church and they were growing up on the mission field. And the mission leaders knew that I could play children's songs for church on the guitar. And they asked me, would I please play music for this group of kids and their parents? All of them struggle, all of them struggling to raise their kids apart from a real Christian fellowship because they were on the mission field. And I did, and I, I led the worship that day. And the parents came up to me afterwards with a deep sense of gratitude because these parents had said and they told me they'd been on the mission field for a decade. And while they felt like everything was about them and there was resources for them, no one had ever thought to do anything about the faith of their children. And it just warmed their hearts and it made them glad and encouraged them so deeply that I was there to play guitar and lead their children in some church songs. And so Paul is sitting in the midst of this two-year house arrest awaiting trial that may or may not ever come, wondering what his life circumstances will be, perhaps stewing in the unfairness of the situation. He's sharing the gospel with a judge who really just wants a bribe payment. But part of what makes this bearable for Paul is that Paul knows who God is. And in fact, God had revealed to Paul earlier on that um, he's going to end up in Rome preaching the gospel before he dies. So don't be afraid of where the road takes him. Paul knows where he's going. And so he can sit in the middle of that unfairness and injustice because he knows by God's grace it won't last forever. And once I understood why the missionary team needed me, it made their denial of my request to go to Chinese church more understandable. In fact, it was a moment I would later take into deep consideration on this question of calling because maybe I would be better off staying back in the USA and equipping the church there for mission. Maybe the Chinese church was doing just fine without my help. Maybe I should consider ministry in the U.S., which is a mission field in its own right, one where I already knew the language and the culture. You know, hence the, the clergy caller. We often think that God likes to meet us in high places, mountaintop experiences of joy and fullness. We tend to link the presence of blessing and, and God's presence only when things are going well when we're succeeding and when things are going life and when we're winning and life is good. 
But what if God also meets us in situations of unfairness and injustice too? What if God brings situations like Paul's where our freedoms are stripped and, and unfairness uh, is made apparent and the brokenness of the world is on full display? What if God brings us into situations like that to meet us there and commune with us as well? What if God is capable of working in the missteps and the frustrations and the injustices of our lives as he is our joys and our happiness? Do we dare look for God uh, when our work is um, giving us the runaround? Do we dare look for God when the family unfairness is made manifest? Do we dare ask when the mission moment has gone awry if God has a hand in it? Because this is, after all, the core Christian assumption uh, surrounding the crucifixion of Jesus. I mean, Jesus' death ranks uh, first among the world's great injustices. A man whose goal, uh, only goal was to teach and, and do good and lead a spiritual revival. Um, so he was so reviled by his enemies that they came up with false charges to have him arrested. Hardly an act of justice. And as one of reads through the Gospels, and one is trying to figure out what exactly Jesus did to get himself arrested, the answer is, of course, nothing. He didn't do anything to get himself arrested. It was a combination of mob rule and a weak governor who bowed to political pressure that resulted in Jesus' death on Good Friday. And that should be familiar because the, it was a combination of mob rule and a weak governor that led Paul, to Paul being uh, kept under house arrest. And yet... It was precisely through that weak governor and angry mob that God accomplished something um, miraculous. Uh, he took away the sins of the world. Through the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, a horrendous miscarriage of justice, the great work of reconciling God to his wayward and rebellious people is accomplished. It is precisely through a situation of injustice and frustration that God saves the world. One last example of this, and we'll conclude. One person who re I think really gets this, um, what we're talking about today, is um, the singer Nightbird. Um, and that's the stage name of singer Jennifer R. Marseski. Uh, maybe you have seen her a, a month ago when she was on the TV show America's Got Talent. She has a song called It's Okay, and, and the cranky judge, Simon Cowell, loved it. You know, and If the cranky judge loves it, you're doing okay. And what makes um, Jennifer Marzuski's story so remarkable is that by age 30, she had had cancer three times. And even singing on stage, she confesses to the judges on TV that there was still some cancer in her brain and in her lungs and in her bones. And she was doing okay. And she only has a 2% chance of living, but it's not zero. And so if anyone has a claim to life being unfair, uh, to being unjust, it would probably be Nightbird because... Um, she is someone who has gotten the deck absolutely stacked against her. And it turns out that this woman, um, Nightbird, has a blog where she wrote about her relationship with God in the midst of her injustice and suffering. And here's what she wrote. She said this. I've had cancer three times now, and I have barely passed 30. There are times when I wonder what I must have done to deserve such a story. I fear sometimes when I die and I meet with God, he will say I disappointed him or I offended him or I failed him. Maybe he'll say I just never learned the lesson or I wasn't grateful enough. But one thing I know for sure is this. He can never say that he did not know me. I am God's downstairs neighbor banging on the ceiling with a broomstick. 
I show up at his door every day, sometimes with songs, sometimes with curses, sometimes with apologies, gifts, questions, demands. Sometimes I use my key under the mat to let myself in, and other times I sulk outside until he opens the door himself. I've called him a cheat and a liar, and I mean it, and I have told him I want to die, and I mean it. Tears have become the only prayer I know. Tears roll, uh, prayers roll over my nostrils and down my forearms. They fall to the ground as I reach for them. These are the prayers I repeat day and night, sunrise to sunset. Call me bitter if you want to, that's fair. Call me among the angry, the cynical, the offended, the hardened. But count me also among the friends of God. For I have seen him in rare form. I have felt his exhale, laid his shadow, squinted to read the message he wrote for me in the grout. I am sad too. She goes on to say this. Call me cursed, call me lost, call me scorned, but that's not all. Call me blessed, call me chosen, call me sought after. Call me the one who whispers secret, whispers call me the one who God whispers his secrets to. I am the one whose belly is filled with loaves of mercy that were hidden for me. Even on days, and I'll conclude with this, even on days when I'm not sick, sometimes I go lay on the mat in the afternoon night light to listen for him. I know it sounds crazy and I can't really explain it, but God is in there even now. I have heard it said that some people can't see God because they won't look low enough. And it's true. If you think you can't see him, look lower. God is on the bathroom floor. Paul in our reading today, friends, is a casualty of a broken justice system. And yet despite the unfairness of a situation, he finds the love of God and is able to preach the gospel. Nightbird, in her desperate situation with the chemo and the cancer and the weeping and the sickness. Uh, Paul was under house arrest and imprisoned. She was on the bathroom floor and she found God and was able to preach about his love from there. And for those of us wondering across the past few months, uh, across the past year and a half, where God may be in our own impasses and frustrations and tears, I give to you today Nightbird's advice. If you can't see God, look lower. For the God who came down to the heaven did not despise the cross will meet you on your own bathroom floor as well. In Jesus' name, amen. On Friday a thief, on Sunday a Pennsylvania.